Welcome to Reading Around Macroeconomics. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I will be reading a short piece by Jeffrey P. Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. I have been asked a couple of times, hey, you know, it would be wonderful if you could read what Jeff writes because I don't have time to read it myself because I'm running, I'm training, I'm running after the kids or I'm running from the police. A lot of running is taking place apparently out there in our audience. And the one show a week we do where we go over three of his articles is not enough. Fair enough. I will do my best to read a, a short piece by him or other macroeconomists every day. I hope you enjoy it. The first one here is posted on the 17th of September 2021 at Real Clear Markets. And the title is They're Ignoring that there's too little money now. John Maynard Keynes was no fan of gold. Neither he nor any human being could eat it. And the amount of effort and labor expended at times to dig the metal up out of the ground seemed to him and then his followers weird to the point of harm. Yet the inescapable conclusion remained. Whatever costs expended, they were clearly worth it. Not just to the individual or a group working with pick, shovels, or eventually explosives, striking it rich on discovery and successful removal. The systemic benefits are historically validated, as Keynes wrote in his general theory. At periods when gold is available at suitable depths, experience shows that the real wealth of the world increases rapidly, and when but little of it is so available, our wealth suffers stagnation or decline. The latter certainly classified Europe's great bullion famine of the 14th and 15th centuries, and also the small waves of monetary innovations, money of account or ledger money, which attempted to restore some currency elasticity in the absence of precious metals, silver too. The question for economic thinkers was whether there was a better medium the costs of going underground for a shiny metal were openly welcomed because gold was not wealth, but rather a valuable commercial tool. Therein lies its intrinsic benefits, irreducible though they may be especially to modern sensibilities. Gold has been gone for a long time, however, banished from monetary agency. Its role has been taken by that which once sought to supplement its scarcity, the ledger. Keynes argument against using gold as the primary form of medium was that there were better, more suitable alternatives. For one thing, on the topic of dearness, it all came down to what many economists believe is the irrationality of gold hoarding. Such grave matters should not, they reasoned, be left to individual decisions, rather concentrated in a public utility the central bank. As Keynes had written more than a decade before in the early 20s, the greatest monetary evil is this, the shortage of money and its deflation, which quite vigorously savages labor most of all. The entire economy suffers, of course, but it is the unfortunate single worker who has no protection from these far-reaching and from the worker's perspective, incorporeal ills. Whenever money is 
too dear, the actual wealth of any nation is undercut because money rather than sustainable enterprise is prioritized. Heightened liquidity preferences reorient the very nature of business. Risk-taking or animal spirits diminish, if not disappear, entirely. Acting on behalf of the entire system, proper central banking might offer currency elasticity, which would mean a legitimate offset to when but little of it is so available, our wealth suffers stagnation or decline. Or so it is in theory. The Chartalists, forerunners of today's MMTers of the 1920s, presumed that money was nothing other than the government's plaything, and the politicians, then and before, had unwisely failed to appreciate their great power left unused. Subsequent crisis at the Great Collapse of 1929-33, to 33, proving once again the disaster of short-supply money, the monopoly idea gained strength. In practice, it wasn't that at all. The very opposite, in fact. The Federal Reserve, imperiled and chastened by its horrific performance during the Great Depression, remained a total joke throughout most of the 20th century. The great inflation of the 70s merely proved the wisdom of treating the Fed as a useless bureaucracy ill-suited to any mandate. All the while, private ledger money proliferated in the absence of a functioning gold exchange or any official acknowledgement, benign neglect. While ostensibly private, this was very different than a gold system, too, in that the keepers of the ledger were checked to a very narrow select group, global dealer banks. The end of the Great Inflation in the early 80s saw then one of the most confounding and accidentally ironic combinations in economic history, the Volcker myth. Suddenly, we are told, even now, these formerly hapless office holders, surrounded by gross failure just a minute before radically transformed into the wise stewards of the Socratic judgment, practically overnight, without any explanation of what or how. Their only answer was the monopoly. According to the myth, Volcker's method was to exercise it and thereby conquered the previously unconquerable out-of-control inflation. This was not to be a tyrannical turn toward complete monetary over overlordship, rather like Cincinnatus, an intermittent demonstration of their ultimate power to be used sparingly, and only in those most dire situations the enlightened few decided met with Keynes' standard. Keeping with nominally free market principles, the Federal Reserve would not directly rule or even operate, but occasionally influence and control, cajole, moral suasion. Only in the extreme case would monopoly authority get exercised. Even in the face of the 90s stock bubble, then Greenspan's group remained on the sidelines, since the implication of that bubble was too much rather than too little. 
the more extreme outwardly deflationary collapse of 2007 to 9, a global financial crisis, if only because this global bank-centered monetary system made it that way, it had simply exposed these assumptions for all their numerous fallacies. The banking system retreated, and thus money became dear. But what grew too short did not include the Federal Reserve's byproduct of reserves. Monetary monopoly had always been with the dealers the entire time. Post-Volker, the Fed merely led a public campaign for what remains one of the greatest lies of omission in history. In practice, this had meant something slightly different from what Keynes had imagined, or Volcker, Greenspan, and Bernanke, for that matter. It wasn't the irrational and dangerously emotional public hoarding gold or any effective money medium this time around. And there was no true central bank which could take front of its monopoly because that didn't exist. For the first time in history that I can find, the when but little of it is so available, our wealth suffers stagnation or decline, was the banking system's ledger. The 2008 crisis was a bank run, but of only banks running away from opening it up and adding new names and amounts to it. An interbank panic of just banks panicking. Yet, subprime mortgages... To this day, such fact remains unappreciated, if not wholly undiscovered. The Federal Reserve and the world's monetary regimes conspiring to add another layer to the lie of omission, the era of QE. The actual and primary function of bank reserves was to reestablish the plausibility of their proclaimed money monopoly. Don't fight the Fed, because this wasn't in fact actual. Because this wasn't in actual fact plausible, the first GFC in 2008 wouldn't be and couldn't be a single one-off event. The fundamental substance of the system would remain unaltered; its functioning diminished. Speaking on the topic of the. Unusual bond markets of October 15, 2014, Fed Governor Lyle Brainerd in July 2015 wandered off the official track, if only briefly. What happened in the Treasury market that day, the previous autumn, was she pointed out intraday movement in Treasury prices was six standard deviations above the mean. Improbable to the point of being impossible, yet there it was. She continued, Of course, other developments may be affecting liquidity in financial markets. For example, market participants indicated that changes in participants' risk management practices may be contributing to reduced market liquidity. In particular, the experience of the financial crisis may have led many participants to reevaluate their market-making activities and either reduce their exposure to that risk, become more selective, or change more for it, thereby reducing liquidity, charge more for it, thereby reducing liquidity. 
Let me paraphrase. Bank reserves, as it turned out, might not be that important if the banking system has little use for them. Flooding the accounting with them, though, makes a great and happy fairy tale to sell the public on forgetting about any legitimate details apart from how big the QEs might get. What that had meant for the specifics of the one specific October 15th in treasuries was repo and derivatives collateral, an untamed buying panic. So monumental, six standard deviations later, there's no good explanation any official can possibly put forward that doesn't give away the whole bowl game, which is why the official Treasury Fed report on this subject blamed computer trading. Even then, USTs as useful collateral are merely the currency here, not the gold-like money. Balance sheet capacities and capabilities, in other words, collateral elasticity is one possible offshoot performed under the banner of securities lending and the like. When it becomes in too short supply, the consequences are like Kane said. There are any number of factors which govern dealer balance sheet construction and maintenance, the real private money of the last three quarters of a century, an aggregated view of the system, that is, the ledger. To put it briefly, having been burned and having watched in horror as contemporaries like Bear Stearns were snuffed out in what the Fed claimed was a successful bailout, changed everything. Bill Dudley said aloud in the few days after its demise, the fact that they, the banking system, just saw Bear Stearns go from a troubled but viable firm to a non-viable firm in just three days, I need more liquidity. I need to be less leveraged. And that lesson from what happened to Bear Stearns isn't going away. Yet it did go away if only for the public from the central bank worldview to be replaced by the narrative about the coming flood of otherwise extraneous bank reserves. With no real use for that flood, and with Bear, as well as Lehman and AIG, forever fresh in their minds, bank dealers grow skittish and have several times, each time closing the ledger. Not all at once, even the first GFC was a multi-year process of reversal. But in incrementally withdrawing balance sheet capacity, this has the effect of creating these negative, deflationary symptoms in collateral, as well as in other things such as a rising dollar exchange value. Earlier this year, in the beginning of January, while everything was supposed to be going just perfectly, for the first time in seemingly forever, the dollar, clear out of the blue, stopped falling against most of the rest of the world's currencies. COVID vaccines, monumental Uncle Sam helicopter drops, trillions more in QEs globally. And yet there began this contrary indication. Even as the treasury market itself, along with global sovereigns elsewhere, caught reflationary wind, rising nominal yields and their 
overhyped sell-off, deeper within these monetary shadows, something was off in the real monopoly. It came to a head all the way back on February 25th, this time as the treasury market routed, bringing up again the topic of liquidity in the market. Though the price action was in the opposite direction of from October 15th, 2014, there were more similarities than not. Why prices could move so far and fast, whichever the direction. What had sparked the liquidations was a historically poor seven-year note auction from Reuters. Analysis, big moves and liquidity woes in the U.S. bond tantrum, tantrum without the taper on the February of the 26th. <clears throat> the poor auction was indicative of primary market dysfunction, wrote analysts at TD Securities. Secondary markets were also showing signs of stress, they said, with bid-ask spreads widening. There is no liquidity, said Andrew Brenner, head of international fixed income at NetAlliance Securities. In other words, another example of what happens when dealers take a step back, like September 2019, and in the case of February 25th, they did so, and did so in such obvious fashion because of a technical glitch in Fedwire the day before, which I wrote about extensively at the time. That glitch on the 24th wasn't really the problem, otherwise a small little nothing that because of the way things really are when it comes to keeping of the ledger quickly and very publicly spiraled out of control into something bigger than it should, and not just the treasury auction of the 25th. All this time, still fragile system, far, far more attuned to the long-lost ghosts of bear than whatever the latest huge QE. That there has been a string of QEs is itself a useful clue along these lines. How could everything which seemed to be going right end up the way things seem to be heading now? Why would Fedwire and the next day remain so distinct on practically every chart closing in on seven months later? The same reasons, really. October 15th, 2014 would stay relevant years afterward. Even the once rambunctious U.S. inflation numbers have already begun to come back down to earth. Transitory, thus not inflation. More and more around the world, it's becoming too obvious to keep overlooking the latest version of Keynes when but little of it is available, our wealth suffers stagnation or decline. Yet, ignored anyway. The problem is, even today, hardly anyone knows what it is and just why there might be so little. On the contrary, in keeping up the omission, all we've been, all we've heard this year is how there's too much money. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. I hope you enjoyed the lesson 
from Jeff Snyder. I thought this was one of his better Real Clear Markets essays. I'm glad I went over it. And I hope you don't mind some of the guffaws and the hiccups and the snafus. I didn't go back to edit any of it because I'm busy, sweet Moses. I've got lots of things to do. Naps, okay? I've got to get my, uh, go to the beach. I've got to get a tan. So there's a lot of things I've got to do. And therefore, I hope you don't mind some of the snafus, some of the poorly accented female voices that maybe I mixed up a southern voice with a old British voice and I did a terrible job of it. I hope I'm going to do better. The most important part is that it's educational and if it's a little entertaining, great. Thank you and I will see you later. <laughs>